shall we begin? Movies. No more room in hell. TV. Four games. It takes a very steady hand. Conventions. Star Trek action figures also sold separately. Comics. My spidey sense is tingling. Collectibles. Sold $325. Books. I'm the best-selling author. RPGs. Where the Cheetos? Video games. Grab and Fields. <laughs> Music. <laughs> Anime. I'm the This is the G2B Podcast. Hello and welcome to the G2V Podcast. I'm Scott Woodard, and in this episode, my co-host Arnold T. Blumberg and I will be going where no man has gone before. We're heading into the final frontier to discuss the Abrams vs. Star Trek. One of the things I thought we should actually do right at the very beginning is lay our cards on the table as far as where we're coming from. Because one of the problems with these kind of things is you got a lot of people out there talking about this stuff, a lot of us with different backgrounds related to... Star Trek and what we think about it, that I thought it might be nice to clarify where we're coming from because, quite frankly, every opinion's subjective and it's all informed by where we started. So I was going to say a little bit about the fact that I grew up with Star Trek probably being my number one thing for years and years. Star Trek was at the top of my list. And certainly through most of the 80s until I discovered Doctor Who, pretty late along compared to a lot of people I know. Star Trek was everything to me. Buying every book, reading every novel, knowing all the technical manual garbage, uh, watching every show. I take some small measure of insane pride that's probably not warranted in never having learned star dates, so I didn't go that far. <laughs> but And I probably couldn't remember plenty of stuff that some people who are dedicated fans would say, surely you know when they began shooting that. At, no, I never did that kind of thing either. <laughs> but I was really – I mean I built a library of Star Trek. It was so important to me. And as Next Generation went on in the movies and all the subsequent shows – it stuck with me for a very, very long time until Voyager and killed it dead. But that's all right. That's a whole <laughs> that's other another, show. That's another show. But so, yeah, growing up with the original series is the core of the whole thing. And those characters and that experience was probably one of my biggest areas of concentration of fandom in my life. And where where do you come from as far as? Uh, very similarly, uh, at least in the beginning, because when I was younger, uh, we were watching – Star Trek, and I think in my hometown it was running, gosh, I want to say Sunday evenings, probably around dinner time, but I, don't quote me on that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I grew up in Rochester, New York, and I, I know that they were showing it, and I swear it was Sunday evenings, but that's when we were watching it, and then, yeah, I was pretty hardcore into Star Trek. I had, uh, Mego Toys and a few yes. of the other things as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I don't know, my, my Star Trek fandom, well, strong, only in the sense that I, I certainly was watching the shows. I didn't really get in too much into all the side stuff. Okay. So I actually didn't start. I, I think my first Star Trek novel that I ever read was a Next Generation book, believe it or not. Wow. I mean, right. I know the things were out for many, many years prior to that, but I really didn't start reading the books until Next Generation. Sure. And then I was kind of voracious around that point. Uh, Next Generation kind of made me more of a Trek fan than the original series in some some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but for me, yeah, we did watch Trek regularly, and I did love it, and I was a huge Kirk fan. Uh, but I think Doctor Who, in my case, actually sort of dominated, and I was I was into Doctor Who a lot earlier and stayed with it, obviously, until 
more or less this very day. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, that but, part's uh, also similar for us. But yeah, so for me, Doctor Who came along a little bit later, and Star Trek was everything. I mean, even when I was interested in Star Wars, and deeply so, buying every Kenner toy I get my hand on, hands on, Star Trek was still the main interest. So, so I figured it was important to say that because from that perspective then, although both of us are coming at it from having seen it just, you two also, right, just after you're talking about the original actual network airings of the, of the original show. Yeah, I mean, early 70s is when I started. Right. So. so we're both in that first period of it's on repeats, it's going all across the country. I know I was catching it afternoons, late evenings, whenever it was on and seeing it over and over and over again. That says a lot of and, and of course, both of us at the age we are and, and that experience, that that has a huge impact on how we take a look at something like this, which is – an extraordinary thing after decades and decades of Star Trek existing, after it's slowly reaching its Doctor Who is celebrating 50 years this year as we're recording. And Star Trek is bearing down on half a century in a few right. years. Three more years, right? Three more years. From where we're recording, yes. And its legacy is also huge and sprawling and has led to so many different things in, in every conceivable medium. And yet now here we are, and at least we could really look back at 2009 and say that after all of the industry that Paramount built around this property and created all these shows and this enormous sprawling mythology and, and timeline of all these characters, they decided to go back to the beginning. And I, I hate this term, but in this case, it is quite accurate, reboot Star Trek and start from scratch and say, look. What is the core of it? What makes it the most successful? What is it that most people remember? What is most iconic about it, pop culture-wise? And the choice, that part I have no problem with, was completely obvious, which was let's go back to the original characters that made Star Trek what it was. That triad of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, although in this case one of the things we can talk about is it's really now become a duo, um, and the ori that original Enterprise – and that crew, and let's start again. And, of course, the choice was made out of this possibly somewhat wrong-headed belief that Star Trek desperately needed to be reinvented in order to find a mainstream audience. You could argue that that's true in the sense that these movies have succeeded to some extent. But in 2009, they reinvented it, and how they reinvent it, they go back to Kirk and Spock and that original group. And whether they're successful or not is something – we should talk about, and of course now we're talking about the second of these reinvented Star Trek films with uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. Now, of course, it's correct me if I'm wrong, but for many, many years they've been talking about doing a, a bit of a, a reboot, going back to the doing the Starfleet Academy film concept. It wasn't that discussed way, way back. Frequently, uh, Harv Bennett, who was basically sort of the 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 man uh, who was like stewarding the Star Trek movies for quite a long period of time was one of the people who was all for the idea of doing a Starfleet Academy thing. Uh, and then of course Shatner himself in writing some of the books that he wound up writing was also very often <laughs> keen to do a Kirk and Spock back at the Academy thing. He even had this regular thing he'd always bring up about pitting the two of them against one another. So yeah, I mean, it certainly wasn't an original 
idea to go back to the beginning and try to start again. And like I said, there's no real mystery here about this is the most perfect choice. If you're going to choose any crew, any place to start again, you've got to go back to where it all began in that first Star Trek series and why that has become, for good and bad actually, you could say quintessential American science fiction. Star mm-hmm. Trek is definitive in capturing a certain kind of American exceptionalism and a style of storytelling that not only is unique to 60s America and television, but then translates well decades afterward. So to find a new audience, to reinvent it and say, oh, Star Trek's become for all the Star Trek people, it's not getting a mainstream audience – there's no better place to go than to go back to those characters and start it again. The problem, of course, that I have and some people have is how that turned out. And, of course, the beauty of this is is that we have very different opinions about how that reinvention took place with the first one in 2009. I mean, to be perfectly honest, um, as you well know, well, as certainly as Arnold knows, but the listeners don't know, um, I actually do quite – I'm quite fond of the 2009 film. Uh, I know it has its flaws, and I will probably agree with you wholeheartedly on several of them if we discuss this, uh, discuss it in this episode. But um, but I still find find it hugely entertaining, and uh, and I think it did what it was supposed to do pretty well to to reintroduce those characters. But in retrospect, and I mean we'll get into all this down the line. I think, and just because you touched on this a little bit already, I think one of its biggest flaws. Is that it? It I think it it tried too hard to uh, to appeal to the fans. I, Even though J.J. Yeah. Abrams is not a, a Star Trek fan, yeah. I think it tried too hard to try to fit things in so that the actual start established Star Trek fans wouldn't be too offended. But of course, maybe that maybe that backfired. We've talked about this actually off mic about this when we both just recently saw in the darkness i've come to the realization that i feel pretty certain about that i think the biggest mistake they made was trying to make this reboot actually fit within the context of the fictional universe itself Mm -hmm. i think that may have been the biggest miscalculation of the whole thing and just doesn't work and and yeah, uh, as you also just said, the other element here is J.J. Abrams is quite outspoken about not being a fan of Star Trek, right. which is not. And, and another thing is, I, I like to. I feel like I definitely want to throw in a lot of caveats here and there because there's so many things about this that rub me the wrong way when people talk about these things. Like for instance, I you you like the '09 Star Trek. I really think that movie is one of the stupidest movies I've seen in the last <laughs> 20 years or so. And I don't mean that as a kid that grew up with Star Trek watching like, oh, they're destroying my childhood. They've changed Kirk and Spock. I have plenty of criticisms about that. I just mean as a film, as a story, it it has probably the most concentration of stupid of anything that I can remember. I still feel that way. Right. And and there are plenty of things I could point out. We'll probably get to one or two of them. But uh it's just so – it's just such a stupid movie. But the thing is it doesn't mean that I also don't agree that in a sense they did succeed in exactly what they were trying to do. That movie did reinvent Star Trek. It did capture a huge audience. It was a big success. Who am I to say that that was wrong? I certainly feel it's justifiable to come and critique it later and say whether it's a good story, 
or whether, you know, in comparison to Star Trek, is this really the same kind of thing? But it certainly was a success. I don't take away any of that. I, I would simply say that one of the main things we, were pro- we can probably get to with all of the specific points we may bring up is that I feel very strongly, and I, I don't mean this um, – by the way, this is another of my caveats, is that when things like this come up, people say, oh, you're a hater. Uh, one of the, my least favorite things about the internet is that you, if you have a negative opinion about anything, you, they instantly go to the nth degree and you're a hater. I don't hate the 2009 Star Trek. Hate implies that somewhere in the middle of the day, I'm sitting alone in a room and just randomly for no reason, I look up at the sky and go, 2009 Star Trek! And it's just like, no, that would imply a passion for this silly movie that I just don't have. I think it insults my intelligence. I don't enjoy it, but I don't hate it either. I just think it's stupid. And when you're talking about it, you can criticize it. But trust me, when we're done talking about it, I'm not going to be, you know, losing sleep over the 2009 Star Trek. (laughs) But uh, it's. It achieved what it set out to do in some respects, but I think that ultimately I feel quite comfortable in saying that Star Trek as we know it died in 2009. The entire history of Star Trek from the beginning, the debut in 66 until 2009 was a cohesive thing that certainly, like many things, had plenty of contradictions within it as countless production teams and writers and everyone else worked on it. But it was one thing. And in some sense, you might even argue it succeeded in maintaining a certain moral and ethical core, a certain kind of storytelling. And then in 2009, that was all over. This thing that is now called Star Trek is a different thing. For some people, it's Star Trek. For some fans of the original, they're quite capable of jumping that line and saying, yeah, they can see Star Trek in it. I don't quite most of the time, and I feel that it's more accurate to say this is another thing wearing the name, but they certainly did do a lot of the job that they were setting out to do, which is reinvent it, and I think they did that. You're listening to the G to V podcast. Your father was captain of a starship for 12 minutes. He saved 800 lives, including yours. I dare you to do better. Enlist in Starfleet. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. What's he doing? Ambassador Spock, you are on a collision course. Well, for me, I think, I mean, you're right, and I do agree with you that that the the Star Trek as we know it is effectively dead. I mean, this is not to say that there aren't still comics and and novels set in the original series. Sure. 
universe that are going to continue and may well continue uh, for a while because that whole storyline, the story that we heard about J.J. Abrams originally wanting to sort of become the the uber emperor of an entire new Star Trek franchise and, of course, that failing uh, may well mean that the if they don't do, say, another movie – which we'll discuss later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it could very well mean that Paramount will sort of re-embrace all the original stuff and, and it, to some extent sort of deny what's happened. But we, we'll go into that. But I think as a long-term, long-term, I guess I could say long-time Star Trek fan, sure. uh, the 2009 film did reboot things and did revitalize things for a franchise that is for, certainly from my, my perspective was feeling very, very tired. And oh, absolutely. I don't deny that either, that, right. that it was tired. But I think a lot of the tiredness doesn't come from the fact that the – see, the problem I have with it is a lot of the thinking seems to be Star Trek was for geeks. Only the geeks cared. And how come you know Joe and Jane moviegoer aren't going to see Star Trek movies? We need to get them. The problem I felt was never with Star Trek as a concept or a premise or a franchise. The problems with the fact that really you had almost the same exact production team working nonstop on Star Trek since 1987, working through every show, working through all those movies. There wasn't a lot of fresh blood coming in. And while this definitely did do that, you could conceivably have done that within the context of the original timeline of the fictional world of Star Trek started fresh somewhere else and never even needed to do anything else to address that and could have revitalized it. But, I mean, you've again, you've mentioned this to me off mic. From your perspective, you think that it was a misstep to do the 2009 movie as done, and they probably should have effectively started with Into Darkness. When I saw Into Darkness... And this is the thing that, that has shocked a lot of people. Anybody that knows me knows that certainly when Star Trek came out, the 2009, we'll just keep saying Star Trek, came out, I had a long list of, for anybody that's read critiques of that movie, nothing, nothing I came up with was all that original. I mean, there are plenty of people talking about the same things. Long list of problems I had with that movie. And then I went to see Star Trek Into Darkness. I really enjoyed myself in the theater. Had a nice time. I thought it was a fun movie. I thought it felt almost a little more like Star Trek to me. I was getting emotionally invested. I enjoyed the entire ride. And I left feeling that I had seen a nice movie that, unlike the original, was a lot less stupid with a plot that I thought ultimately hung together pretty nicely. It didn't rely on the same tricks that the first one did that I felt were insulting, as I said before. And I enjoyed it. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. I even depressed a few close friends who were so certain I was going to share with them a hatred for this that when I said I liked it, it shocked the hell out of them. In retrospect, I still have some very specific problems within the darkness that I want to talk about. But it does not mean I didn't enjoy the movie. I right. thought it was an enjoyable movie. It isn't Star Trek. It's something else that's being called Star Trek. And in the sense that I enjoyed it, I'm okay with that. But in doing that, it really made me realize that I think the biggest mistake they made was creating that ridiculously convoluted, time-changing plot in the first film 
out of some desperate desire to try to placate both sides to mm-hmm. say we're going to recreate the story for newcomers. But don't worry, fans, because the timeline's really still there. We're just changing the time. By doing that, I think they created far more problems for themselves than they were solving. And I think, in essence, it might have actually been better if they just started in 2009 with a movie. Here's this guy named Kirk. Here's this guy named Spock. They're young guys. They're getting started in something called Starfleet. Kirk's going to be a hero one day, and we kind of know that. But let's watch the ride and see him go on this hero journey and never mention anything about any other timeline or any history at all and just tell the damn story. I think if they'd done that, if they'd basically started – I watched Inner Darkness, and I felt like in a way it was sort of like watching the beginning of a new version of Star Trek with just a little bit more added to the beginning to provide a little more backstory – they almost didn't even need the 2009 movie. In fact, one of the big criticisms of Inner Darkness right now, which I sort of agree with, is the 2009 film was all about Kirk going from being the damaged young rebel with a chip on his shoulder and his impulsiveness and discovering the hero inside and the captain and the reasoning commander. And then they literally undo that whole thing in the opening of this movie to have him go through that again. Right. And a lot of people are arguing that that was repetitive. And I'm thinking, yeah, it kind of was because in a way you could almost throw the 2009 one out. That mm-hmm. entire movie is all about this timeline garbage that really is unnecessary. Yep. So No, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think I, uh, my friend Mike actually has his perspective on the first film. He's also somebody who quite enjoyed it as well. But he thinks that the, the sole reason that movie was made is because J.J. Abrams hates Vulcans. He hates those pointy-eared bastards, and he just wanted to blow Vulcan up. So that was the sole reason they made the first movie. Well, here is one of my real deep thematic problems with that first movie that I pointed out to the people. And I guess we're tooting our own horn from time to time on this. I could point out I teach a lot of media classes, so a lot of stuff is about whether you like or dislike something. I always tell students it doesn't matter ultimately. Put You can do a review for one sentence in a paper like, you know, I liked or didn't like this movie. But then once you say that, get rid of that. Now it's time to look at the meaning regardless of that. So I can't stand that movie. But forget that. Let's look at what's in that movie. And what's interesting is why did they go back to Kirk and Spock? Because Kirk and Spock are the most iconic characters in the entire history of Star Trek. And if you're going to start again anywhere, it's the best place to start. And then what do they do? They take Kirk and turn him into someone who is drastically different from the Kirk we met, not an assured young man who went through bookishly in Starfleet uh, Academy and became the youngest captain on the Enterprise and became the hero that we know in the TV show, but a deeply damaged, rebellious person who doesn't understand the world around him and, you know, trying to find his way and needs to be forced back into a position where he might be able to rediscover himself again. And then you have Spock, the young man who already in the original timeline had plenty of nice built-in conflict, being half Vulcan and half human. But no, let's also take away his entire planet and murder his mother in front of his eyes. The result being that you've taken these two icons that you seem to think are so important that you needed to go back and start the franchise again with them. And you change them so completely that they're not the Kirk and Spock we had in the beginning at all. They're both deeply flawed individuals. Now, the question I had back then and still have is, is that what we need right now then? Are people looking for heroes that can't just be heroic and intelligent and 
commanding? Do we need people that are working through incredibly deep psychological problems and great <laughs> loss? Because it seems like that's what we need. And Spock's thing was Superman. They took Superman's origin and put it on Spock. Yeah. He lost his planet. He's the last son of Vulcan. It's just a weird decision to say Kirk and Spock are huge towering icons of sci-fi heroism. Let's go get them back again. And now let's make them completely different. Well, I have a, I always had a feeling that, um, whether it was Abrams or the writers in the, of the first one, well, certainly it's pretty much the same group this time around, but, uh, I feel like they latched onto one thing from Kirk's history and completely structured his character around that. And that was him cheating on the Kobayashi Maru. Right. And because that was like, oh, well, you know, look at that. He's a, he's a cheater. He's, you know, he's going to, he's going to push boundaries. He's going to, you know, be a troublemaker. But it's like, well, no, not really. Um, that was one instance. One instance. And, right. And that should have not been the entire focus of a character. And the Somebody story. Somebody get away with that. Yeah. And the story he told in the movie is a charming story and he's eating that apple. And then they have Chris Pines Kirk eating the apple in the midst of the actual test. As a visual cue for fans, a little bit of fan service there is the phrase we're all using now. Mm-hmm. And, and yet when they actually play out the scene, he is so presumptuous and arrogant and obviously cheating in the middle of the test <laughs> that there's no way you wouldn't be able to tell that he's pulling something. The, right. the Kirk in our timeline clearly cheated on this test by reprogramming the thing and probably did it quietly. You know, he yeah. did this. This guy is flaunting the fact that he's screwing with the system and enjoying right. it. And yes, of course, the argument is it's really a different Kirk we're looking at here too. But yeah, and and I think actually building on your point, that's another thing that I still see in the second movie even though I enjoyed it. This Kirk particularly, Spock a little less so mainly because I think Zachary Quinto is so excellent. Um, Chris Pine's okay, but he's not – he doesn't have nearly the weight that Shatner had. But the the thing about this Kirk is this Kirk is a cartoon. He's mm-hmm. a caricature of Kirk, and he's also a caricature of all of the jokes about Kirk and Shatner himself that have built up in pop culture over the last nearly 50 years about Kirk screwing every woman he meets on every planet, um, you know, being this, you know, rule-breaking guy. If any of these people sat down and watched the actual original show, Kirk was a very intelligent, reasoning, commanding leader who would, yes, occasionally step out of line and make impulsive decisions, but they did not read as decisions made by someone brash and so full of themselves that they thought they were right no matter what. They were made because of some kind of justifiable explanation in the story. He mm-hmm. was not this character. And he also didn't screw around nearly as much as they make it out to be. Yeah. The Kirk in Into Darkness is walking across the campus and, going, and like turning to look at the hot chicks and going, <laughs> hey, Jim Kirk, Shatner would, ne- that would never have been him. Watch nope. any episode where he's flirting with a girl in the original Star Trek. He's the much more subtle adult character. This guy right. is a frat boy. Yep. And that is based on the cartoon of Kirk. And Shatner's own caricature of himself that he's really done a great job building around himself for many years now. But it's just not Kirk. It's a cartoon of Kirk. Obviously, there are a lot of other things I could say about the first movie. We should probably try to stay a little more current and get into, into darkness a little bit more. But 
certainly when looking back at that first movie, it's just that it felt like an assault on the senses of stupidity. Now, obviously, you enjoyed it. A lot of people did. I just felt like there's so many things from the fact that the entire plot revolved around a big ball of red paint that did whatever the plot needed it to do at any point in time. And the thing is, I've brought up this argument and some people and here's one of my caveats again. Some people have quite rightly pointed out, hey, old Star Trek had plenty of stupid stuff. And it's like, yes, absolutely it did. It's hard to argue stupid. When you can look back at the old show and they had lousy episodes too and they did stupid things too. And even as late as into the movies, what happens in Star Trek 3 but we find out David has used proto-matter and that's why the Genesis planet is falling apart. I happen to like Star Trek 3 a lot as part of the, the middle chapter in this fantastic, emotionally involving trilogy that's probably one of the high points of the entire Star Trek saga. But is proto-matter stupid? Of course it is, because it comes out of left field. We never get any explanation for it. It's meaningless. It's just a solution to something that they just needed to make happen. So I'm complaining about red matter, and meanwhile there's proto-matter back there. So yeah, it's hard to argue that. That's true. However, just in terms of the 2009 movie, once again, that whole decision to do the time travel thing is what led to the decision to come up with this red matter idea. And then you've got a movie based entirely around a MacGuffin that makes no sense and that behaves completely differently in every scene depending on what they needed to do. One drop of that stuff is supposed to be devastating, but when the entire ball blows up, the Enterprise is in pretty good shape <laughs> running away from it. Uh, so there's that. And probably one of my biggest character problems in that whole movie – was that they took Uhura, who has always been perceived as one of the strongest early female characters in a genre that was certainly supposed to be progressive, but still would often need to play catch-up in that area. And you had an African-American actress, you had a female character who was represent, she was an officer, she was shown to be competent, and more than that, excel in her position, and yet would still demonstrate that she was a human being with emotions. Meanwhile, in that movie, and a little bit in this one, although, again, I enjoyed this one, and one thing I enjoyed was the fact that they dialed it down a bit. Throughout the entire 2009 Star Trek, Uhura acts not like an officer of a ship, but like Spock's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Which, again, there is no problem at all with a character being both emotionally involved personally and serving in Starfleet. But the thing that offended me deeply was when her character actually strong-arms him into reassigning her to the Enterprise yes. because they're having a relationship. That is just ethically insane. These people were our heroes because they represented the best of Starfleet. I don't consider that behavior to represent the best of Starfleet. I don't consider her mooning all over him and hanging on him constantly and seeing that he's okay on the bridge of the ship while they're both on duty to represent what Star Trek used to be about. Mm -hmm. But then again, as people also pointed out, there was a lot of stupid stuff like that in the old show too occasionally. All right, fine. But all <laughs> these things together meant that that movie felt really, really wrong to me. Into Darkness goes a long way to resolving a lot of those things. And yet it's doing poorer, so... <laughs> yeah, that's very strange. So maybe maybe the fact that I can't stand the 2009 one and enjoyed Into Darkness might have something to do with why Into Darkness appears to not be doing too well and calling seriously into question 
whether this Abrams verse, as everybody is calling it, actually has uh, legs because it seems like this movie has uh, really split the audience quite a bit. Well, there was, I mean, if we, we might as well talk about all these, uh, these things that were discussed, uh, in particular, we were sort of prompted by this IO9 article that came out just today, uh, which talked a lot about some of the things I think we will agree with. <laughs> and I think one of the biggest issues that this, or one of the biggest obstacles rather that, that Into Darkness had to overcome was the way it was promoted. I think from the very outset, uh, I was even a little on the fence because every, teaser every promo uh every trailer that was posted uh showed this dark sort of depressing action movie mm-hmm. it was all just intense explosions and people running and in pain and it just did not in any way shape or form feel like star trek mm-hmm. which is kind of funny because when you see the movie yeah it has those elements but I think there are a lot more Star Trek-like elements in the, this film that were completely left out of the, the, the way that they promoted it. I agree. And I think that definitely may have had something to do with it. They kind of, as that article pointed out, they sort of went a Transformers route uh, with the promotion rather than actually showing adventure and friendship and all of these, you know, and morality and the things that are important to, to track. And that did definitely take more center stage in this movie than than in the previous one, which mm-hmm. is why I enjoyed this one more and felt like, okay, this does seem to be capturing a little bit more of what makes Star Trek Star Trek. But you're right, and I don't know. I, I, it also falls into one of my many larger rules about cinema and media in general that always annoys the hell out of me, which is the the studio or the director or the creators of something that are clearly embarrassed by the very thing they're working with. When a superhero movie is desperate to avoid superhero iconography, when a horror movie like, oh, I don't know, let's say zombie movies that want to disguise the very existence of the zombie in the film because for some reason they're desperately embarrassed by the fact that that's the genre that they're working in. This one was very much promoted like, you know what, now that we've gotten that first one out of the way, can we not make this Star Trek at all? Can we just <laughs> make it an action movie? Notice also that that although – there's plenty of it in the movie. They also really tried to veer toward putting the characters in a lot more monochrome outfits, a lot more mm-hmm. black and gray, keeping them out of the colored uniforms more often. In the same way, again, that so many superhero movies uh, desperately try to veer away from using the actual uniforms in any accurate way or keeping the masks off. But, of course, that also has to do with actors' face time, which is important. Right. Um, so yeah, in a sense, it felt like they were leeching the color out of a lot of this one. Yeah, I really, f- I found that especially amusing when they had those uniforms. They had those little triangle windows, <laughs> and so you could just get a little peek at the color underneath. And I, it was almost like the costume designer saying, "You know, we did these great Star Trek uniforms. They're red and blue and yeah. gold. Can we at least show that here? Well, you can have a little window yeah. on the shoulder. That's that's fine. Yeah." That's true. And I do that. You're talking about promotion. I think one of the stupidest things in, in the handling of this movie was the absolutely ridiculous game they played with the revelation of Benedict Cumberbatch's character. Right. Which, of course, that were no need for spoiler worry. <laughs> the supposed John Harrison, who is, of course, Khan. Um, what? I'm not. Yeah, that's right. You didn't notice that when you were watching the movie? I don't know if there was ever a moment 
in all these months of buildup and all these ridiculous little games they played in interviews and everything, where I ever seriously considered the possibility he was going to turn out to be anything else. And in some sense, really, I do feel that, again, the choice of just, oh, we're doing our Star Trek 2, let's do Star Trek 2, was an obvious choice, maybe the only one that was ever going to be made, but maybe also a mistake. Because there really is no need for that. And the other, and again, here's another example of why that whole thing of doing the timeline thing was probably a huge misstep. Which is that if this movie came along and did this version of Khan, you wouldn't, you'd know the other one if you'd seen it. But you'd go, okay, they're using the name, they're using some of the general concepts, but he's a very different character. And even given that this Khan has had a different experience in this timeline, He's still a very different character. For one thing, for God's sake, he's Benedict Cumberbatch. He doesn't look remotely <laughs> like Ricardo Montalban. And if we actually buy into the fiction of this film, the fact is this Khan is supposed to physically be the exact same man that our Kirk revived in Space Seed because mm-hmm. he exists before the timeline changed in the 2009 Star Trek. Therefore, theoretically, when you're seeing Benedict Cumberbatch on the screen, you're supposed to be seeing the same exact physical being that Ricardo Montalban played. Right, and I never heard Benedict Cumberbatch refer to Corinthian later. (laughs) Not at all. So what happened to him exactly? (laughs) And yes, of course, you could argue the same thing happens with everybody. Anton Yelchin looks nothing like Walter Koenig. Everybody, fine. But this one's a pretty big change. And while I also liked Cumberbatch's role, you could pretty much say he's generic British villain from every American action movie that's ever been done. There and and I also like the fact that this was a con who had been used by Starfleet and was even vaguely sympathetic that he had been manipulated. And I again one of the many things I enjoyed about it, I enjoyed the story. But really, there was nothing about this character that he needed to be Khan. He could have been anybody with similar attributes. It really was not necessary. I was just thinking of my total, total segue here. But for some reason, I was thinking in my head, you know who might have actually been a, a better Khan, at least in the Ricardo Montalban sense, would have been like Benicio Del Toro. He was one they were after. Yeah, and I think he would have actually – that would have worked a lot better because he almost has similar features. Well, yeah. I don't remember but, exactly. I'm sure there are plenty of people listening that know more than me, but I, I think he actually turned it down. I'm right. certain that he was on the list. He probably uh, saw Damon Lindelof was writing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with this thing. <laughs> Let's get that Sherlock guy. All right. He's British. He'll come over. He'll do it. But, you know, going back to what you were saying in regards to the whole con thing, um, unless you want to complete this thought, because I think I know you were going to, you may have actually wanted to touch more on this, but, uh, that, that the little game they played for far too long, you know, is it con? Is it not con? Is it John Harrison? Who's John Harrison? All this craziness. Um, for me, when they finally do the reveal, not to say that I didn't sort of work it out ahead of time and just think, well, it has to be con. Yeah. But when they finally get to the reveal after this long game, eh, whatever. I didn't, I didn't give a crap at that point. Yeah, oh, yeah, but because like I said, it really, really it doesn't matter. 
because the association that con has with the history of that character from before, there isn't enough of it in this movie that really matters. And again, I, I enjoyed it. I like the, I enjoyed the part about how this guy, and he does obviously become a central villain in the third act and the, in the final act. But the fact that he is a conflicted, I, I loved his scene in the cell where he starts crying for his crew and, and what was done to him. Nice right. performance. Nice, nice idea. Nice, nice little twist to put a character like that in who is quite clearly the, the villain of the piece and then switch the villainy to Admiral Marcus instead. And I thought Peter Weller was great. Mm-hmm. Um, but really it, you know, I hate this phrase. So I'm saying it at the end of the day. <laughs> Did it have to be Khan Nooney and Singh? Not no. at all. It, it didn't have to be. It was, it really didn't matter at all. It could have just been a brilliant scientist who got exploited. Yeah. By the system. Didn't have to be a guy from the past. Didn't have to be any of that. Nothing. Nope. Nothing. It was meaningless. And, and then of course the, the only, I'm trying to think, I think maybe the only reason was they needed the magical blood to resolve a death that was completely unnecessary in the movie too. And then they also needed a justification for Leonard Nimoy to show up for his cameo. Um, <laughs> which was a bad cameo. Which was cute, but again, yeah, really awful. Totally it's like, you know, unnecessary. remember young Spock, I told you, I can't <laughs> tell you anything. So anyway, about this con guy. Yeah, so basically it all went really, really bad. How did you defeat him? Let me give you the details. <laughs> great of, But just this one time. It's like, you know, I don't know what, like three, four movies down the road, is he going to be calling him up? Remember the part where your brain was taken out? How do I do that again? Can you tell me how to do that? Well, first you need a colander, and you need to put it on McCoy's head. Oh, God. Well, ultimately, this whole thing could have been avoided if Scotty, if Kirk had listened to Scotty and not signed for the uh, (laughs) the torpedoes, because if they had not been on the Enterprise... That's right. This wouldn't have happened. You should have listened to Scotty instead of accepting his resignation. <laughs> Scotty, who at least in this one also, is shown to have a very strong moral conviction about this is wrong. This is not what we should be doing. Yeah. It's like, all right, then get out. Yeah, exactly. Chief engineer. That's the Star Trek way. And if it, you don't want this to be a warship, get out. And that's become a running gag in this series, too, that, that – didn't make sense in the first movie. Like it's like they felt, well, we need to give this Chekhov something to do. So suddenly, last time, despite never having been involved in that really at all, Chekhov is suddenly a transporter whiz. Last time, which felt like really undercutting Simon Pegg, Scotty, and even any attempt to make Scotty more than just comedy relief last time, because Scotty's supposed to be the transporter whiz and the engineering whiz. So why is, and, and that was another one of my complaints, which is the lack of professionalism on the enterprise. Uhura spends time on duty on the bridge, you know, consoling Spock and Chekhov runs off the bridge in the middle of a major crisis situation because he thinks he's the only one who can handle the transporter, which winds up being true. And then in this one, he apparently can also immediately step into the role of chief engineer. <laughs> Clearly not too well, but well enough. So he's evidently whatever they need. He can be anything. You know, Dr. Boy genius. Dr. McCoy's busy and he can't do this heart bypass. So can you get, <laughs> get a blue uniform on? Put a blue shirt on. <laughs> I like that idea. He can't actually do it unless he changes the shirt. <laughs> I'll get down there right away. No, 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 no. 
put the blue shirt on first. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not allowed. But Captain, the man is dying. A blue shirt. Blue shirt. It's now. Science. Oh, science. I think the other, another major issue with Khan is sort of, I think one of the biggest issues that I, that I do have with the 2009 film, despite me loving it, uh, is that it was too much targeted at their focused on the uh, fans. Because. Which are the very people that they were saying they weren't interested in dealing with. I know, I know, but they completely have failed there because ultimately, what new, uh, moviegoer who's not really familiar with Star Trek is going to walk in there and react to the name Khan. Right. If they haven't seen Space Heat or Wrath of Khan. Right. They don't give a crap. It's just John Harrison for, for all they care. Right. So it was kind of a stupid move, I think. Yeah. And one, and a lot of the criticism I've seen in this movie, like, as I said, I enjoyed it more and I actually was questioning my own opinion because I was thinking, well, was I enjoying it more not because it's a better movie, but because it was actually pandering to me more? <laughs> Is that what I was reacting to? Because so many people are saying this one seemed to lean so much heavier on fan service. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that bad decisions because it was a, a more fun movie and I did feel that the plot was a little better than the, the previous one. So maybe if they'd cut out and, and a lot of people are complaining about the fact that they then take the entire Spock death scene from Wrath of Khan and flip it with Kirk, which frankly at the time while watching it, I really like the fact that they took something that we all remember and yet found a way to make it emotionally resonant with because the other because the the criticism so many people are having with that one is these characters haven't earned that moment. Mm-hmm. The criticism I see everywhere is well those two men were men who had a deep friendship for decades. These two guys barely know each other. Right. Well, when I was sitting in the theater watching the movie though, I did not have a problem with that. I felt like it played well with two guys that barely know each other, but let's face it, have been told already that they're going to be lifelong friends. They know that. Mm-hmm. They know their destiny in a way that the others didn't. And mm. and to lose him that early, it's a different kind of emotional reaction. And for Kirk's arc in this, I thought it made a lot of sense that the younger Kirk trying to find his way toward being a hero is the one that's going to make the sacrifice because that should, and it's interesting actually, again, another thing Abrams does, unfortunately, no matter how much you enjoy his stuff, all he does is borrow everything. Everything in this movie was like bits and pieces from other movies. Kirk sacrifice at the end, a man who is so self-absorbed and narcissistic suddenly deciding that he's going to do something heroic and sacrifice himself. Well, guess what? We just saw that at the end of the Avengers when Tony Stark decides to grab the nuclear missile and go into the black hole thing. Exactly Mm -hmm. the same beat. The villain who decides to let himself be captured and taunt people from inside a white cell. Well, we just saw that in the Avengers when Loki did that to everybody. And that's also something that's been turning up in a lot of recent movies. The hit on Starfleet. When Kirk suddenly realizes, wait a minute, the reason Khan hit the place he hit is because we're all going to have this conference, and while we're all here, isn't somebody going to try to mow us down? It's the Atlantic City hit from Godfather Part 3. Not the Godfather movie you would immediately think to borrow <laughs> from, but he did. The, yeah. There's shots from Independence Day. The opening sequence is like an Indiana Jones movie. He doesn't mm-hmm. make Star Trek movies or his own movies. He makes a catalog of things he likes from other movies. Right. So even while I was having fun with this one, 
I was sitting going, all right, that's the chunk from that. That's the chunk from this. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's hard to evaluate it on its own because it's just, it's just a collection of chunks from other movies. It appears you've been keeping valuable information from me. You'll be able to, <laughs> you'll be able to fly this thing, right? Something tells me I already have. Good luck. Jim. Yes? The statistical likelihood that our plan will succeed is less than 4.3%. It'll work. In the event that I do not return, please tell no, me that I love her, Virginia. It'll work, Virginia. <laughs> Jesus. This is the G2V Podcast. Fascinating. Well, the two issues I had with the with the Kirk death are that, first of all, in, in the context of this film, you have no sense of permanence because you absolutely know Kirk is not going to die. Sure. So there's no emotional I, – I didn't feel any emotional reaction to that. It just sort of, okay, yeah, how are they going to get out of this one? Um, whereas, of course, when Spock died at the end of Khan, you didn't know if you were ever going to see Spock again. Right. Absolutely. We were all pretty convinced that that was probably it, even though they have that final shot where they show the torpedo. But uh, that's which was added but without Myers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other thing I got really bothered by in that sequence was, I think it would have actually been, since of course they were trying to flip it. You know, oh, this is this is our version of this whole sequence. I actually really thought it was stupid when Spock shouted Khan, and I found it very annoying, and I think it would have actually been kind of cooler if Spock, as facing death like this of a friend, had maybe drawn back to his Vulcan side and done a far more uh, restrained but intense uh, Khan, mm-hmm. where it was more like, okay, now Spock is dangerous. A as opposed quiet. To just, yeah, yeah, a really... A quiet one, I, I think, would have been a little bit more uh, impactful. I heard a lot of people like laughing at that. I mean, I, I didn't hear it in the theater. I've, I've heard that a lot of people have been laughing at that and use of Khan. I didn't. I actually didn't have a problem with that either, and thought it worked at the moment that I was watching it. But I totally get that as as a criticism again. That it's just there's so much, and 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 there's one big thing about this movie that I definitely wanted to bring up. And this is a huger issue that it took days before I really started looking back. And it speaks to something far more general about our culture. There was a lot of debate when the 2009 came out about Star Trek has always been seen as a kind of science fiction that, again, I just joked about Spock's brain. There's there's plenty of Star Trek that's not exactly the smartest stuff in the world. And yet Star Trek has always been seen as intelligent science fiction or at least trying to be focusing on moral and ethical issues the the intellectual side while star wars is busy shooting things up and swinging lightsabers star trek is wrestling with these issues and yet the reinvention of it feels a bit anti-intellectual it's abrams filtering star trek through what he really loves which is star wars which of course makes it all the more appropriate that that's what he's moving on to because he's been making star wars for the last couple movies anyway but in keeping with the the anti-intellectual part the thing i had a problem with this movie was this movie ultimately does have uh, an attempt at a trek moral ethical issue which is terrorism and the dilemma of do we 
take an exploratory body and make it militaristic? Where do our values lie as a people? Do we strike first? Do we use drones or torpedoes to kill the enemy before they kill us? Do we give up freedom in order to secure ourselves? All the issues that we're struggling with in the real world filtered through this film, that feels very Star Trek. And yet, while looking back at it, I think that I remember at the very end of the movie, you get that dedication. Uh, the movie's dedicated. I can't remember exactly how it's worded, like the, to the memory of 9-11 or the victims of 9-11 and terrorism all around, all that. The more I thought about it, the more I felt how that actually leaves a bad taste in my mouth and feels desperately hypocritical. Because really, when you think about it, this movie spends over two hours entertaining your summer blockbuster audience with nonstop violence, explosions, buildings coming down, ships mowing through people and objects, more punching than I can actually remember in a movie in years. Granted, I haven't seen a lot of the other action movies out right now, but about halfway through this, it actually struck me. (laughs) appropriately enough, how much punching was going on in this movie. This movie reveled in using violence to entertain you. And then at the end tries to make it all better by saying, but peace and love. Yeah. And to me, it just felt like the hypocrisy that we see really in a lot of media that we all enjoy, which is that we want to feel like we're morally and ethically solid and that we know where our values lie. But we sure do enjoy going to the movies and watching things blow up. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like although this movie did seem to take a further step toward that Trek idea of let's deal with the moral and ethical issue of it all, it still tried to have its cake and eat it too. It wants to say that war is bad but isn't war fun, and that's the main problem I have with this movie. Yeah, I think Roddenberry was probably spinning in his grave over these films. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's not, there's not a lot left of them to spin, but... Uh... <laughs> oh, my God. All right. For anybody out there that's like, you know, sitting there with a the great bird poster or whatever it is... <laughs> the great bird of the galaxy. You've stabbed them in the heart. I'm at... No, I'm with being... With a bat or whatever <laughs> I'm just saying that he he probably would not have been particularly pleased with the right? direction oh, of these films. Today is a good day to die. <laughs> <laughs> Enough. 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 I made a good point. Now you've ruined it. No, you made a wonderful point. <laughs> you made a wonderful point. No, I, I mean, it's, sure, it's, I wonder what he would have thought, actually. But then again, I also never 100% bought into the total hero worship of him either like anybody else he's just a man and a producer and a writer hard to say what he would have thought about where this is right now because certainly popular so although this one like we said this one has not done as well apparently so which uh you know maybe we should uh, sort of segue into what we think that might happen um with star trek now because of this the fact that it's not performing as well um and obviously they're going to make some decent money on on demand and Netflix and DVD or Blu-ray sales, but it certainly didn't knock it out of the park like they were hoping. So what do you think might happen next? Well, you mentioned that article we were talking about. And long before reading that, though, there's always been the debate that although we all got comfortable with Star Trek movies, certainly with the classic cast, 
it's seeming the only real way to make use of them, that Star Trek is sort of an animal that lives best in the television format. And certainly all those series would suggest that that's where that storytelling works really well. And also that ultimately so many of those guys, like I said before, were working on it for so long that there's a lot of burnout. By the time you get to Voyager and Enterprise, how many different stories were there to tell? The same people working on that show over and over and over again. But I think it is true that Star Trek seems to be a format that works really well with every week, let's go out and explore those strange new worlds and new civilizations, everything that that whole opening speech is about. Mm -hmm. And movies, while it's nice, and I certainly wouldn't say I wouldn't want to see more Star Trek movies, maybe not necessarily these, but I I did enjoy this one a bit. Um, it does seem to me that the best way to make Star Trek work is to do a show, do a TV show. And maybe what's really needed now is to do what they did with Next Generation, to do what they did with some of the other shows. Start from scratch bunch of people on a starship, borrow a few of the elements from Star Trek that make it recognizably Star Trek, either for newcomers or for older fans, but try to embrace the larger th idea, which is every week is an exploration of some kind of, I mean, they all didn't do this, but, you know, moral or ethical issue. And then, and then also have good character, have good storytelling, have good adventures, just have a good adventure once. Well, I mean, let's face it. One of the things we all remember best is Kirk fighting a lizard guy in in Vasquez Rocks. And, and yeah, that also did have a message because what's Kirk do at the end? He spares his life. He spares the monster's life because the monster is not a monster. He's just a different person. Mm -hmm. And yet most of the episode is really just let's watch him fight the lizard guy. Right. So you, you get to have both. It's a fun adventure, and it also had a nice message at the end too about finding – commonality between people and it's not what they look like on the outside and all these things maybe it just needs to be a tv show again and it needs to be a tv show with new people that don't have any association with all the tv shows that were done before because they are not going to be doing anything but the same thing they already did except for in the first episode you'd probably want this strange machine to come from another universe and it would have zachary quinto playing spock <laughs> And he would say, I've just come from another parallel universe. And, okay, no, we wouldn't do that. But, it's, um. It's blue matter. It's blue. It's mauve What's, matter. What is it? It's made of mauve. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, if I, if somebody walked up to me and said, you have it in your power to, uh, to keep Star Trek alive, uh, in what format would you like it to be? I would say television, please. Yeah. Um, and given the kind of world that we live in now, where you have things like, as we're recording this, Arrested Development has come back on Netflix, and Amazon mm -hmm. is, oh, is you know giving the go-ahead to pilots, and and television has become a very different medium, where the medium and the content are drastically different. People are consuming television in different ways. Wouldn't it be interesting to see Paramount? do Star Trek as something where it doesn't have to be beholden to some kind of regular broadcast schedule. You could do miniseries. You could do you could do bits set throughout the entire history of Star Trek if you want to do that. You could do things that are completely fresh and new, like this one attempted to do. Right. And some would argue did succeed in, in doing that. Um, there's so many options available to the idea of doing serialized Star Trek like a television show. It doesn't have to be a once-a-week broadcast network thing. 
mm-hmm. and maybe it shouldn't. Well, along those lines, one other thing I thought would be kind of fun to talk about is that just more or less uh, at the exact same time, the well, I mean, a week, week or so away, uh, that the uh, Into Darkness was released, we also got a new fan production of Star Trek uh, online that you and I have just watched uh, this last night, rather, and quite enjoyed. A lot. Really, <laughs> really enjoyed it. Enjoyed it more than I have enjoyed many so-called professional television productions that I've seen in the last year or so. Yeah. You're talking about Star Trek Continues. Star Trek Continues. Star Trek Continues. And, and the thing is, anybody who knows, and probably far more well-versed, than us, I don't know. I don't know if you've seen a lot of the others. I know I haven't delved into this world nearly as much. Is that there's a lot of fan productions out there. Probably the most popular, or at least one of the most well known for several years, has been James Cawley has been at the head of one and playing James Kirk in one that's been called New Voyages, and I think they now switched over to calling it Phase Two. And have produced a number of episodes. They have fe- they have had episodes where Walter Koenig has been back as Chekhov. George Takei has come back to play Sulu. Uh, David Gerald wrote and directed one. The, a two-parter that was yeah. based on a script that was rejected at the time. That was uh, quite a point of contention in the history of things because it featured a gay character. And he was finally able <gasps> to see that realized. Yeah, where else but Star Trek would you think that should happen and be explored? Yeah. And and did that, and Denise Crosby's in that. It has an enormous amount of goodwill. The sets are amazing. The lighting, amazing. They use all the old musical cues. It's great. James Cawley's Kirk is kind of interesting. <laughs> in the early ones, he's kind of shaking his Elvis impersonation, because that's actually one of his other professional gigs. Um, but it's been a lot of fun. And And as long as they don't make any money from it, CBS, Paramount, they're like, all right, go ahead. But then all of a sudden, the Star Trek Continues has come along. Different group, headed by a different guy playing Kirk. Can't remember his last name now. Vic. I just remember his name. Is Vic. 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 But he's something. Or but other. he's good. Yeah. Uh, he's really good. And and their sets, I mean, completely comparable with Callie's sets. And in fact, I don't know why, but for some reason, they looked even better to me. It could just be the yeah. lighting or the, like you mentioned, the direction. I think lighting and direction are really important. Yeah. And they all they've done, apart from a few little vignettes that they released. Oh yeah, and and Chris doing. James Doohan's actual son playing Scotty and doing a damn good job of not just doing an impersonation of his father doing Scotty, but acting. Uh, Grant Imahar from Mythbusters is Sulu. Maybe not one of the best in the group, <laughs> but, but trying. He's tried so hard. And Larry Nemechek, that actually surprised me when I looked it up. Larry Nemechek, who has been a longtime writer and Star Trek historian himself, and has written a great deal of material and appeared at conventions and uh, big name in the history of Star Trek, uh, documenting the whole history of it, appearing in this as Dr. McCoy. And and while not, you know, physically similar to DeForest Kelly, actually doing a nice job of capturing Kelly's kind of mannerisms and what makes McCoy McCoy. Yeah. Uh, and, and Vic does, I think, a better Shatner and a better Kirk. While not really doing an impersonation, uh, then, then Collie does maybe a little bit. I, I mean, Collie stuff is also very nice, but this, I don't know what it was, but it was just so impressive. And of course, very, very polished. If anybody yeah. sees it, the real fun in this, oh, and the, the, I can't remember her name, Kim, can't remember her name now, plays Uhura, who actually has played Uhura in the last several episodes of Collie's Star Trek as well. 
Oh, okay. So she's actually right. Frosto. She's cornering the market. That's not <laughs> She's the only Uhura. And totally captures in one great scene Uhura's, I always felt insufferable showboating in the rec room. Um, anybody that remembers her Charlie X scene will love a scene in this. And then as one of the real joys of this first episode, it is actually a sequel to Who Mourns for Adonis with Michael Forrest back as Apollo. And as some of you out there might say, if you haven't seen it, wait a minute, if this is set within the five-year mission, how can Michael Forrest come back as Apollo when he's an old man? Well, that's the beauty of it. It's, it's explained. It's explained, and it is quite a beautiful, emotional story. Yes, it doesn't quite feel like a totally polished TV production, and then sometimes it kind of does. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's uh it's a really admirable piece of work. And if yeah, I had, if I had to argue which one captures Star Trek better, well there's no contest. Star Trek yeah. continues does. Absolutely. I would agree with you. Um I, I mean there was there was a lot of genuinely emotional stuff in this one and um you know some really good drama. I I actually found myself riveted when I watched it last night and and yeah, I went along for the ride with uh Into Darkness. But I don't think it touched me as much as as continues did. That really says a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It's, it's, it's interesting. I and mean, these guys, these guys did a great job. They did an amazing job. And again, they don't make any money on it. I mean, that's part of the rules for doing these things. They're doing it for the love, and obviously, the money goes right back into whatever expenses. I guess is how it works. Sure. And obviously, they're planning to continue. They they only just recently debuted this, and from what I've read, we were were looking this up. I was looking it up anyway after we both watched it. They just debuted it, I think it was at Phoenix Comic Con, and and the reaction was extraordinary. I think they got a standing ovation after they showed the episode. Absolutely deserving. Yeah, and the thing is, granted, you say, oh, okay, yeah, sure, right, because all the old Star Trek fans are sitting there with their – you know, shirts on the com. They're so happy to see the old sets. Like, no, actually, it's more than that. This, yeah, this tells a story. It has a real emotional center. Forrest, I mean, of course, is a as a veteran actor is certainly a good choice to help anchor their first one because it gives them someone that really has a history. But everybody does a nice job. Special call out to. Um, I know where you're going. <laughs> Well, there are a couple things in this that were kind of cool, too. <laughs> You're finding this too funny. There are a couple things in this that are kind of cool, too, which is that although it's original series, and and like a lot of these fan productions have done, like Callies have done, the idea is let's continue the five-year mission because obviously the original show only got through three. They did a couple nice nods to the future is coming. For instance, there's an opening bit that actually – slyly refers to the eventual development of a holodeck. So there's the idea there that one day Next Generation will be coming along. And one of the other significant things in this one, and kudos to one of the best additions to Star Trek classic, is that they introduced the very first ship's counselor in a new character. Uh, what is it? Elise McKenna is a new character. Yeah. Yes. And she's definitely a high point of the episode, I think. <laughs> Yes, she is. She has great emotional rapport with with uh, with Forrest as Apollo, and they needed that because uh, you'll see. But uh, Carolyn's not around this time. To uh, Leslie Parrish's character does not turn up in this one to renew her acquaintance with Apollo. So we kind of need someone else to 
be advocating for him, and McKenna's character does that in this. I find that I can actually talk about this one hour of these people putting this together <laughs> with a bit more heart and emotional involvement than anything we talked about in the last hour or whatever on the two Abrams movies. <laughs> yeah, you may be right. I mean, really, all those movies are is just a lot of punching and, and hanging. That's one thing, by the way, I didn't mention. The 2009 movie, Abrams seems to think that all suspense and action comes down to hanging the hero off something high. Kirk hangs off a lot of things in the 2009 movie. That's right. And, right and there's the a cliff face at the beginning. Yeah, and there's a lot of hanging in this one, too. There's less hanging. I gave it credit for having a little less hanging than in the first movie, but there's still hanging. Um So there was no hanging in Star Trek Continues. Well, actually, that's not true. <laughs> Wait, that was there? Kind of is, but it when they're outside. Well, no, but there's a there's a scene where Kirk's kind of in the air. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> That's right. There is there is. But it felt more there. organic in that. I yeah. guess. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's great. It's great. So yeah, I do. I highly recommend that uh, you check out Star Trek Continues. Uh, you can just go to our show notes, and we'll have the link there for you to go and absolutely. Uh, it. It's on Vimeo and. I think they're also putting them on YouTube, and obviously they got a site too. But and I was laughing earlier because uh, the actress who plays McKenna, well, she's she's very attractive. Oh, there's no denying that. <laughs> there's well, she's a ship's counselor. She has to be very warm. There you go. You know, yeah, yeah. someone that you feel you could turn to and. Moments. But she's also a great actress. I'm, I, and I'm, yes, she does a wonderful she job. Really, really is. She is. I mean, no joke. She is one of the best of the ensemble that they have. Right. And she has to carry, like I said, she has to carry a lot of the emotional weight of the episode, and she does a great job with it. But it's also important to remember these aren't all amateurs we're talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. For instance, she's done a lot, uh, and so has Vic, who's her real life partner as well. Uh, both of them have a long history of doing a lot of voice acting for anime, for video games. They've also done some on-screen acting as well. So they're by no means amateurs at all. Uh, they're just also Star Trek fans and wanted to put this production together. So and yeah, and of course, um, uh, what's Michael? Is it Pollard? No, what am I thinking? The guy who plays Apollo, Michael Forrest. Why do I think of Pollard? Where is that coming from? Michael J. Michael was in Mirror. <laughs> That's right. Uh, no. My- Michael Forrest, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, is a, also a, a, a pretty uh, busy voice actor, even at his age. He's in a lot of anime and stuff as well. So maybe that's how they all got to know each other. That could very well be, yeah. And Michael Pollard. Michael Pollard. Who's Michael Pollard again? <laughs> Michael J. Pollard was in Miri. He's also in Bonnie and Clyde. Whoa, that's weird. So I actually was <laughs> I yeah. actually had a Star Trek thing there going on. Yeah, absolutely. Michael J. Pollard also appeared in a classic Lost in Space where he's the boy behind the mirror that Angela Cartwright meets. He's got a long history of uh, science fiction connection. <laughs> we'll have the Michael J. Pollard. <laughs> now we got to do the Michael J. Pollard episode. <laughs> hey, we, can we get him on the phone? Yeah, probably. I don't know. Skype him in. Around, we'll, have to, we'll have to find <laughs> You're listening to G to V. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission, to explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. 
Hi, I'm Keith Ari DeCandido, international best-selling and award-winning author of over 40 novels, as well as comic books, short stories, novellas, and more. I'm also an editor, currently hiring out through Creditorial, a musician, currently percussionist for the Boogie Nights, and a whole lot more. Hear me talk about my writing and my life, and also do readings for my work on my twice-monthly podcast, Dead Kitchen Radio, part of the Chronic Rift Network. For more information, go to chronicrift.com or to deadkitchenradio.medio.com. You know, one thing we didn't talk about in regards to Into Darkness, but I, I mean, I guess this would have been nitpicking, but sort of some of the things they introduced, which I think maybe went a little bit too far. For example, having the transwarp beaming. I mean, it was now we don't even need starships, apparently. The thing about that is, on the one hand, the introduction of Khan using the transwarp beaming in this movie is a very nice follow-up to the fact that we had Scotty introduce it in the first film. Right. Which Spock, of course, gave him old Spock because old Scotty had come up with it. Except you're right. The problem now is that means why the hell do you need the ships? And then even more egregious than that is that at the end of this movie, they've cured death. Yep. All you need is a synthesized version of Khan's blood. And frankly, you don't need even just Khan. You got 72 people laying there. <laughs> Yeah. You can create this serum, and evidently McCoy's now created a serum that brings people back from death. Yep. But we're obviously going to forget all about it next time. It bothered me because when they had that whole thing where they had to get their hands on Khan, I thought, well, there's 72 other people that have this blood, right? Yeah, that was a crazy plot moment. You've got to bring yeah. Khan back. No, you don't. Go downstairs. No. You've got a whole bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> Just open up one of those, Crap. take some blood. You don't have to wake them up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They don't even have to know. Just, you take... just keep harvesting them. It's like parts the Clonus Horror coma. <laughs> <laughs> we have a reference to parts the Clonus Horror when we're talking about J.J. from Star Trek. Awesome. So there was that, so the transport beaming. And then, um, yeah, like I say, death is apparently irrelevant now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, especially because they show the warehouse full of all these guys still there, including Khan. Yeah. So and they've put Khan back on ice, so they're keeping them. Yep. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it it sets the bar so high now for any kind of jeopardy that there's nothing they can do except completely ignore all of it, and that's just horrible storytelling. Yeah. And then going back to you know the continuity issues of, and I say continuity in the sense that trying to once again appease the fans. There were there really was no reason to have Klingons in that movie. None at all. It could have been any race. They could have made something up completely different and just had them go there. Yeah. But instead, Klingons, why? Well, because it's Klingons and people know what Klingons are. Yeah. Well, some people do. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll get you that. I'll give you that. Yeah. And then, of course, what was even stranger to me was, okay, so the Klingon, he takes his helmet off. And what does he look like? Eh, he looks like a Klingon that we've seen in, like, you know, motion picture on. Yeah, pretty much. He's he's got some piercings now for some reason. Now the Kling, now the Klingons are like pirates of the Caribbean, but other than that, and it's and it's also that that weird thing that we're seeing in science fiction a lot lately. In fact, that we've also recently seen in things like Doctor Who as well, aliens that wear full face masks for no discernible reason to hide what exactly. Yeah. I, why are they wearing those so that they can reveal the face and the okay fine but it doesn't <laughs> actually mean anything that they're wearing that right and of course as people know there was a deleted scene that would have had the Klingons in the first film with uh, with their face masks on yeah though. Eric Bana's character yeah so 
but you're right. I mean, they're, they, that, and that whole set piece is generic deserted alien planet with generic alien race. Right. Does not need Klingons. Could have been anyone. And, and the funny thing was when they did do the reveal and they showed the, the ridgy foreheaded Klingons, the, the only thought going through my head was, well, you know, they've gone back to the beginning with this movie. Right. They've, they've sort of reset everything. They kind of should have gone with sort of, you know, more of the standard Klingons we saw in the original series. They could have done some slight variation, but it would have been kind of cool if they claim, you know, sort of made their own versions of the Klingons. Well, see, and again, this, this gets back to that other point that's uh, important for, to stress, which is that again, it's their own fault. They have created a ridiculous series of problems now with these movies because they wanted to actually split this timeline off within this fictional universe from the original Star Trek timeline. Introduce a Klingon any way you want in this movie, there'd be no problem. But since you've cared enough to tell us that we've gone back in time and changed time from Kirk's birth, that means that things that happened prior to that and things that existed in the Star Trek universe are still sort of supposed to make sense. Therefore, why do the Klingons look like that? And then, of course, that gets into that whole, if anybody knows, probably many do, the whole story that was introduced on Enterprise that attempted to reconcile the look of the human Klingons in the original show with the crested Klingons and how all that happened. None of that would matter. None of that would be a problem in this movie if they didn't do that whole damn timeline thing in the first movie. Right. Don't bother with it. Just yeah. start from scratch. That was their biggest mistake. The Klingons then wouldn't matter. And and even the argument we're making here that these are generic creatures, the generic planet, generic aliens, well, okay, but it wouldn't feel like that much of a problem if these Klingons are just, well, we're just going to call these Klingons. And you're getting a little look at them and fine. It doesn't right. matter. But they're the ones that, that set the rules that, no, this is still technically diverging from what we already know. Well, now you've created a problem because it has to, <laughs> it has to sort of make sense and you're not making any sense. I would have much rather them had their own alien race. Yeah. Just completely ignore the Klingon thing and then do a third Star Trek movie that introduces the Klingons. Yeah. Fully. However, they want a really good Klingon story, which would have been phenomenally cool. Yeah. Yeah. But no. But no. no. <laughs> and of course, and then, last movie, Kirk was in bed with the Orion girl because, right. and, because, and I've read countless reviews and I already talked about how Kirk is this like womanizing lech in these movies that he never was in the original one. And he was with the Orion girl because everybody, I actually read reviews that said, oh, because just like in the old series where Kirk was always in betting the green girl. Actually, no, he never nope. actually did. <laughs> uh, Pike was with the green girl and the closest Kirk ever got was Yvonne Craig's Orion girl in, what was it? Whom Gods Destroy. Is that the right title? And, uh, and he doesn't actually do anything with her and she tries to kill him. So, that's not, that's a, again, that's a cartoon, that's a caricature, that's a misremembered bit of history. And so then they do it again where he's in bed with the two girls because, hey, he's Jim Kirk. <laughs> and I didn't even notice it in the movie. I only found that afterwards on, on one of the websites. I didn't even catch it in the movie, but there were supposed to be Cations, the, oh, really? the cat people. 
Right. So Kirk's got. Oh, they did have tails, didn't they? Kirk's Kirk's moving through everything. He did the Orion girl last time. Now he's got the cat girls this time. (laughs) Says, "Hey, Jim Kirk." He's Jim Kirk. That's what he does. (laughs) That's what he does. Some sub studio meeting somewhere, you know. And so this is how we're gonna do the scene. That's great, JJ. But will Kirk be f***ing people? (laughs) That's what I remember. The Abrams vs. Enterprise, which of course also is significantly larger than the original timeline Enterprise actually, if you look at the details about it, apparently runs on beer. <laughs> which I think is one of the greatest <laughs> statements you can make about this reinvention of the franchise and what it says is that this Enterprise is fueled entirely by, I don't know, Coors Light. <laughs> <laughs> The engine room is – they don't even try. I mean, they don't even try to hide the fact that it's a huge Dripping beer factory. pipes and steam. I mean, I really? If you look in the background, you can see red shirts just, like, tapping the thing and, you know, <laughs> a drink. I'm going to be dead soon anyway. I might as well have a cool one. But it's – yeah. So no dilithium in this timeline. They somehow managed to harness beer. I don't know if I have anything else really to add uh, in regards to Into Darkness or – the Abrams verse. I mean, we could talk about it at, you know, even greater lengths, but I think we may have touched on all the issues that we had with it and the things we liked. Yeah. And like I said, for all the things that I still have problems with that first movie and I found as flaws in this one, I, I absolutely cannot deny that when I went to see Star Trek into darkness, I had a good time. I enjoyed it. And, and maybe it sounds like maybe even more so than you this time, I found some emotional connection with this one that I definitely did not have in the first one. I'm actually surprised that this one is not doing as well so it'll be very interesting to see where this attempt at a reinvention of such a long-standing franchise where it actually heads next and, absolutely and whether the abrams verse will survive or whether it will just wind up being a footnote in this whole saga and one other thing i did want to add as well is that uh some of the best 3d i've seen in a long time you know i really have to say this i hate 3d hate it i i'm one of those people I always will go to see the 2D version of the 3D movies. I don't enjoy it. Every 3D movie to me looks like blurry mud. And and I've come to the realization a lot of it has to do with whatever the way my eyesight is. I've read a lot. There are a lot of people who can't see all these 3D effects properly because different kinds of eyesight, it affects your ability to process it. And I've never been able to enjoy it. I hate it. I don't feel it adds a single thing to the experience. We saw Star Trek in a darkness at a preview screening in a digital theater that I can't remember the name of the particular kind of digital projection, but it was a very specific, you know, proprietary, whatever the company, digital kind of theater that was using real 3D, that one that's called real 3D. And this was the first time ever that I saw one of these new 3D movies and it looked exactly the way I assume it was supposed to look and it looked beautiful. I felt the 3D was immersive. It put me in the movie. It was everything that I've always heard it's supposed to be and that was another reason I really enjoyed it and actually I think maybe even let me give a few elements of the movie a pass because it really looked great and the 3D worked perfectly. So... I can definitely see the value of that if you can see it right. That it right. can really add to the experience. Well, interestingly, I may go see it again uh, soon, and I think I may I may try out the 2D version just so I can cover all the bases. Sure. Space. 
final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Their ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Thanks for listening to this episode of the G to V podcast, now officially part of the Chronic Rift Network at chronicrift.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, and please be sure to rate us while you're there. Visit our website at g2vpodcast.com. Join our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, at g2vpodcast. And if you have any comments or questions, send them our way via contact at g2vpodcast.com, or post them to the Chronic Rift forums. Our show music is by Brian Boyko and Frank Nora. Okay, Mr. Sulu, maximum warp.